linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, we're going to delve into the world of literature for a bit today. But first, I'd like to thank a few people who are helping me to bring these podcasts to you today. And they are Paul M., Dominic C., Matthew W., Charles H., and Mark A. So uh, thank you all very much. I, uh, I appreciate your donations more than you can imagine. And I also want to thank my Facebook and Twitter friends who are helping to spread the word about the salon. And in particular, I, I want to thank Brent H., who left a comment the other day saying that as soon as he could save a little money, he was going to make a donation so he could hear his first name and initial mentioned in a podcast. Well, Brent H., now you don't have to worry about it for a while, so save your money and enjoy the show. Just having you and all of the other unnamed saloners come back each week is uh, more than enough for me. You know, uh, I've been hesitant to bring this up, but uh, over on one of the forums at thegrowreport.com, the topic of podcast donations has come up, and I feel like I should add my two cents to the discussion. For the first six months or so that I did these podcasts, I didn't uh, have a donation button on our website because, uh, well, there were so few downloads that it wasn't an issue. But as more and more fellow saloners joined us, I realized that I was uh, going to need a little help, and so I added the donation link, and, uh, gee, the response has been fantastic. In fact, right now, I have uh, put aside enough donations that uh, we're all paid up for about six months ahead. So uh, you can relax now. This is definitely not a call for more donations. It's just the opposite. What I'm trying to get at here is that uh, I'm not doing these podcasts to earn a living. But uh, some of the new programs coming online have uh, taken the opposite approach and uh, are beginning to sound like permanent PBS pledge drives. And uh, that's what some of the buzz has been about over on the forums. You know, for a while, uh, I thought that my wife and I were the only ones who had stopped listening to uh, what otherwise were interesting podcasts because... They were filled with what sounded to us like uh, desperate pleas for help. And uh, it's just a major turnoff for me to constantly be made to feel like I should be sending money to them every week. And so I, uh, I figured that if the main reason they were doing these podcasts was to make a living, then they uh, weren't in the original spirit of this medium, uh, at least as I saw it. You know, I'm, I'm from the old Internet crowd who believes that information should be free. But uh, apparently some people have gotten the idea that you can get rich doing this. And uh, I guess that may be uh, partly a uh, fault of mine, I guess, because I've mentioned before that uh, podcasts from the salon have been downloaded to uh, well over 100,000 different IP addresses now. And you've got to believe me, uh, that doesn't translate into a comfortable living. Uh, over the course of a year, uh, I've seen that the average donation to the salon is around $11, which... Uh, Works out to about four and a half dollars an hour for the time I put in, which means that uh, flipping burgers in a fast food joint is uh, more financially rewarding. And a hundred percent of the money that comes in here goes to cover actual expenses associated with uh, getting these programs out to you. So I'm obviously not doing it for the money. Now, uh, getting back to the discussion on the forums, uh, the general sense I've picked up from reading the postings is that I'm not the only one who doesn't enjoy being berated week after week because uh, there weren't enough donations. 
Now this week, uh, we received donations from Paul M., Dominic C., Matthew W., Charles H., and Mark A. And I really appreciate the support, because without it, I'd be dipping into my savings every once in a while. And even by saying this, I realize that I'm more or less doing the same thing, you know, uh, asking for donations, but in a softer way. At first, I I didn't even thank our donors in the podcast, but uh, I sent them an email to thank them instead. And finally, I realized that it would probably be better to thank you in the next podcast. I guess I'm not really going anywhere with this, but it's been on my mind for a long while, and I thought that in the event you are thinking about starting your own podcast, you might want to keep some of what I just said in mind. Of course, uh, I've now kind of boxed myself into a corner because uh, a few weeks from now I'm going to release my new book, and that will be for sale. So uh, the cynics among us can rightfully say that uh, what I've been doing for the past four years is building an audience to which I hope to sell my new book. And although that wasn't my original intent, uh, that's how it seems to have worked out. But no matter how my book is received, uh, I fully plan to be here with you in the salon each week, and you're never going to have to pay to hear any of these podcasts. Well, I'm sorry to take so much of your time on this, but uh, I think it's best to have these things out in the open. Oh, and I I guess I should mention that for the foreseeable future, uh, I'm only releasing my novel as an audiobook that I'll be reading myself, and it won't be very expensive. Now, let's get on with today's program, which uh, is a lecture Terence McKenna gave about James Joyce's monumental novel, Finnegan's Wake. And if you're wondering why I decided to play a talk about literature in the salon, well, the reason is that I simply wanted to hear it one more time myself. As you know, this talk has been widely circulated on the net and uh, is even available on YouTube in about a dozen or so segments, but I find it hard to sit at my computer and watch a lecture on the screen for that long. However, uh, I do want to thank the YouTube poster, whose handle is the boy Danny, for putting it online, and you might want to at least take a little look at it to get the feel of the room in which this lecture was given. This entire talk now uh, runs over two hours, and so I'm only going to play half of it today. And uh, the rest of it I'll play as soon as I can. But now, without any further ado, here is the Bard McKenna surfing James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Finnegan's Wake is the the, uh, last and most ambitious and most puzzling work of... uh, the British writer James Joyce, who of course wrote Dubliners and Ulysses. And if Ulysses is the algebra of literature, then Finnegan's Wake is the partial differential equation. Uh, Most of us break down that algebra. Few of us aspire to go on to the partial linear differential equation. in some ways, I think it can arguably said that this is the quintessential work of art, or at least work of literature, of the 20th century. And Joyce intended it that way. Uh, Joseph Campbell called it a staggering allegory of the fall and redemption of mankind. Equally respected critics have called it a surrender to the crossword puzzle portion of the human mind. Mm-hmm. So uh, the main thing about it is that it is linguistically dense. It is dense on every level. It has over 63,000 individual words in it. 
that's long more words than most fictional manuscripts have words period it has over 5,000 characters in it uh, Ulysses was designed as a kind of Joyce thought of it as his day book uh, it follows the peregrinations of an ordinary Dubliner this is Ulysses an ordinary Dubliner through the vicissitudes of his day, his struggles to buy some kidneys to fry for breakfast, his chance meeting with his wife's lover, so forth and so on. Uh, uh, fairly straightforward exposition of the techniques of literature that have been perfected in the 20th century, stream of consciousness, uh, so forth and so on, slice of life. Finnegan's Wake was uh, designed to be the night book to that day book. So it was conceived of as a dream. And one of the questions that undergraduates are asked to shed ink over is whose dream is it? And, and what is this book about? I mean, when you first pick it up, it's absolutely daunting. There doesn't seem to be a way into it. It seems to be barely in English. And the notion, you know, that one could, by spending time with this, tease out characters, plot, literary tension, resolution, this sort of thing, seems fairly unlikely. Actually, it, it's one of the few things that really repays pouring effort into it. The first 25 pages are incredibly dense, and most people are eliminated somewhere in those first 25 pages. And so you never really... It's a language, and you have to gain a facility with it, and you have to cheat. That's the other thing. And there's lots of help cheating, because it has spawned a great exegetical literature, all kinds of pale scholars eager to give you the Celtic word lists of Finnegan's Wake or a discussion of uh, the doctrine of the transubstantiation in Finnegan's Wake or so forth and so on. Hundreds of these kinds of doctoral theses in, in comp lit have been ground out over the decades. The reason I'm interested in it uh, I suppose I should fess up, is because it's two things, clearly. Uh, Finnegan's Wake is psychedelic, and it is apocalyptic slash eschatological. And what I mean by those phrases is, first of all, what I mean by psychedelic is there is no uh, stable point of view there is no character per se. You, ne you never know who is speaking. You have to read into each speech to discover, you know, is this King Mark, Anna Olivia Pluribel, Humphrey Chimpdenir, Wicker, Shem the Penman, Sean, who is it? Uh, and identities are not fixed. Those of you who have followed my rap over the years, I'm always raving about how psychedelics dissolve boundaries. 
Well, uh, Finnegan's Wake is as if you had taken the entirety of the last thousand years of human history and dissolved all the boundaries. So Queen Mob becomes Mae West. Uh, you know, uh, all the personages of pop culture politics, art, church history, Irish legend, uh, Irish internecine <laughs> politics are all swirling, changing, merging. Time is not linear. You will find yourself uh, uh, at a recent political rally, then return to the court of this or that Abyssinian uh, emperor or pharaoh. Uh, it's like a trip. And the great technique, I was thinking about this as I was thinking about this lecture, the great technique of the 20th century is collage or pastiche. It was originally developed by the... Um, by the Dadaists in Zurich in 1919. Right now it's having a huge resurgence in the form of sampling in pop music. And Joyce was the supreme sampler. I mean, he draws his material from technical catalogs, menus, uh, legal briefs, treaty language, mythologies, dreams, doctor-patient conversations. Everything is grist for this enormous uh, distillery. And yet, you know, what comes out of this, once you learn the codes and once you learn to play the game, is a, a, a Joycean story that all graduates of Ulysses will recognize. I mean, the main, what Joyce was about was an incredible sympathy with common people and an awareness of the dilemma of, uh, you know, being a Jew in Irish Ireland, being a devotee of scholasticism in the 20th century, be of dislocation and disorientation, of being the cuckolded husband, of being the failed divinity student. All of these characters and themes are uh, familiar. It, it's quite an... Uh, it's quite an amazing accomplishment. There's nothing else like it in in literature. It had very little um, anticipation. The only real anticipator of Joyce in English, I think, is Thomas Nash, who most people have never heard of. Thomas Nash was a contemporary of Shakespeare and, and wrote of... Famous. I don't know what that means in such a context, but a novel called... Uh, uh, the, the uh, it was called The Wayfaring Traveler. Anyway, uh, Nash had this megalomanic richness of language, this attitude that it's better to put it in than take it out. And, and that's certainly what you get with Joyce. I mean, Joyce is so dense with technical terms, brand names, uh, pop references, uh, localisms. Uh, his, the way to conceive of Finnegan's Wake, really, is like a, a midden 
a garbage dump. And there is, in fact, a garbage dump in the wake that feel that figures very prominently. And what you, as the reader, have to do is go in there with nut pick and toothbrush and essentially remove one level after another level after another level and sink down and down. And the theme is always the same, you know, the delivery of the word, the misinterpretation of the word, and the redemption of the word at every level in all times and places. Um, the reason I'm now gone some distance toward explaining why I think of it as psychedelic, the reason why I think of it as eschatological and apocalyptic is because he really, you know, it's hard to tell. We don't have James Joyce around to ask how much of this material he took seriously and how much of it was grist for his literary mill. But he was perfectly conversant with Renaissance theories of magic. The entire book is based on La Cienza Nuova of Giambattista Vico, who was a... a um, I don't even know what you would call him, a Renaissance sociologist, basically, and systems theorist. And Joyce uh, once, in a famous interview, said that uh, if the whole universe were to be destroyed and only Finnegan's Wake survive, that the goal had been that then the entire universe could be reconstructed out of this. Some of you who are students of Torah this is a very Talmudic idea that somehow a book is the primary reality. You know, the idea in Hasidism in some schools is that all of the future is already contained in, in, uh, in, in the Torah. And then when you ask them, well, if it's contained there, then isn't it predestined? And the answer is no, because the letters are scrambled and only the movement of the present moment through the text correctly unscrambles and arranges the letter. This is Joyce thinking for sure. And it's, it's very close to a central theme in Joyce and a central theme in the Western religious tradition, which is the coming into being, the manifestation of the word the declension of the word into matter. And uh, uh, in a sense, what Joyce was trying to do was he was in that great tradition of literary alchemy that whose earlier practitioners were people like uh, Robert Flood, Athanasius Kircher, uh, Paracelsus, these are not familiar names, but in the late flowering of alchemy, when the birth of modern science could already, the rosy glow could already be seen, the alchemists turned toward literary allegory in the 16th and early 17th century. Joyce is essentially in that tradition. I mean, this is an effort to condense the entire of experience, all, all, as Joyce, as Joyce says in the wake, all, uh, uh, all space-time in a nutshell 
is what we're searching for here. Uh, a kind of uh, philosopher's stone of literary associations from which the entire universe can be made uh, to blossom forth. And the way it's done is through pun and tricks of language and uh, double and triple and quadruple entendre. Uh, no word is opaque. Every word is transparent. And you see through it to older meanings, stranger associations. And as your mind tries to follow these um, associative trees of connection, you eventually, you, you get the feeling, which is the unique feeling that the wake gives you, which is, it's about as close to LSD on the page as uh, you can get, because you are simultaneously many points of view, simultaneously many uh, um, dramatis loci, many places in the plot, and the whole thing is riddled with resonance. Uh, you know, a man uh, doing a task on one level is on another level a Greek god completing a task, and on another level uh, uh, some other figure of some more obscure mythology. So really, uh, one thing about Finnegan's Wake, it's like a dipstick for your own intelligence. What you bring to it is going to determine what you get out. And if you have read the books which Joyce was familiar with, or if you have armed yourself with such simple things as a Fodor's Guide to Ireland, or a good map of Ireland, or a good work of Irish mythology, then uh, it immediately begins to betray its secrets to you. And it's so rich that it's easy to make original discoveries. It's easy to see and understand things which probably have not been seen or understood since James Joyce uh, put it there because he, he had this kind of all-inclusive uh, intelligence. Maybe I didn't make clear enough why that, to my mind, is an eschatological phenomena, this production of the Philosopher's Stone. It's because all it's about the union of spirit and matter. That's what the Philosopher's Stone is about. And writing a book which aspires to be the seed for a living world is about the union of spirit and matter as well. And the, the, um, the Christian scenario of uh, redemption at the end of profane history is another uh, scenario of transubstantiate union, union of spirit and matter. This seems to be, in fact, the overarching theme of Finnegan's Wake and of, uh, of the 20th century. In terms of the temporal context for this book, uh, it was finished in 1939, a few months before 1939, and Joyce died early in 39. In a sense, he died in one of the most science fiction moments of the 20th century because the Third Reich was going strong. It had not yet been pegged down a notch. 
schemes of eugenics and thousand-year racially purified super-civilizations, all of that crazy early 40s uh, uh, stuff was happening. And the book is surprisingly modern. Uh, television appears, psychedelic drugs appear, all of these things appear. He mean, presciently, he was some kind of a prophet. And also, he understood the 20th century sufficiently that the part he hadn't yet lived through was as transparent to him as the part, as the part that he had. He could see what was coming. Well... That's by way of my introduction. I want to read you what some other people have said about this because uh, uh, I don't think I can say enough on my own. This is the indispensable book, if you're serious about this, A Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake. And it, 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 it takes the view that we don't know what this thing is, so we have to go through it literally line by line. And he tells you the story and the, the entire story in the one-page version, in the ten-page version, and in the two-hundred-page version. And even in the two-hundred-page version, there are sections where Campbell simply reports, the next five pages are extremely obscure. <laughs> Mark it. Uh, but uh, this is a, just a short section. And one of the things about working with the wake is you become, at first, this language, which is so impenetrable and bizarre, it ends up infecting you. And you become unable to write or talk any other way. So I'll read you some of Campbell's introduction, and I think you will see it's like the wake itself, except in baby steps. <clears throat> introduction to a strange subject. Running riddle and fluid answer, Finnegan's Wake is a mighty allegory of the fall and resurrection of mankind. It is a strange book, a compound of fable, symphony, and nightmare, a monstrous enigma beckoning imperiously from the shadowy pits of sleep. Its mechanics resemble those of a dream, a dream which has freed the author from the necessities of common logic and has enabled him to compress all periods of history, all phases of individual and racial development, into a circular design of which every part is beginning, middle, and end. In a gigantic wheeling rebus, dim effigies rumble past, disappear into foggy horizons, and are replaced by other images, vague but half-consciously familiar. On this revolving stage, mythological heroes and events of remotest antiquity occupy the same spatial and temporal planes as modern personages and contemporary happenings. All time occurs simultaneously. Tristram and Wellington, Father Adam and Humpty Dumpty merge in a single precept. Multiple meanings are present in every line. Interlocking allusions to key words and phrases are woven like fugal themes into the pattern of the work. Finnegan's Wake is a prodigious, multifaceted monolith, not only the kashimar of a Dublin citizen, but the dreamlike saga of guilt-stained, evolving humanity. 
the vast scope and intricate structure of Finnegan's Wake give the book a forbidding aspect of impenetrability. It appears to be a dense and baffling jungle, trackless and overgrown with wanton perversities of form and language. Clearly, such a book is not meant to be idly fingered. It tasks the imagination, exacts discipline and tenacity from those who would march with it. Yet some of the difficulties disappear as soon as the well-disposed reader picks up a few compass clues and gets his bearings. Then the enormous map of Finnegan's Wake begins slowly to unfold. Characters and motifs emerge, themes become recognizable, and Joyce's vocabulary falls more and more familiarly on the accustomed ear. Complete understanding is not to be snatched at greedily in one sitting, or in fifty, I might add. Uh, nevertheless, the ultimate state of the intelligent reader is certainly not bewilderment. Rather, it is an admiration for the unifying insight, economy of means, and more than Rabelaisian humor which have miraculously quickened the stupendous mass of material. One acknowledges at last that James Joyce's overwhelming micro-macrocosm could not have been fired to life in any sorcerer furnace less black, less heavy, less murky than this, his incredible book. He had to smelt the modern dictionary back to protean plasma and reenact the genesis and mutation of language in order to deliver his message. But the final wonder is that such a message could be delivered at all. Every book has to be about something. I mean, so what is this book about? Well, as far as anybody can tell, um, it appears to be about uh, someone named... Uh, well, they have hundreds of names, actually, but for economy's sake, someone named Humphrey Chimpton Earwicker, or abbreviated HCE. And Humphrey Earwicker runs a uh, pub in Chapelazod, which is a, a uh, suburb or a district of London. And uh, he has, as it says, an idle wifey, who is Anna Livia Pluribel. And now these two people, this barkeep and his wife and their two children, Jerry and Kevin, or Shem and Sean, or, and then they also have hundreds of names because they occur on hundreds and hundreds of levels. Every brother's struggle in history is enacted by the two boys, uh, Jerry and Kevin. They are Shem the penman and uh, Sean the other one. And they, they dichotomize certain parts of the process. So uh, here is in one paragraph, this is the Cliff Notes version of what Finnegan's Wake is all about. If you commit this to memory, you will never be caught wanting at a New York cocktail party. <laughs> 
As the tale unfolds, we discover that Humphrey Chimptonier Wicker is a citizen of Dublin, a stuttering tavern keeper with a bull-like hump on the back of his neck. He imagines as a, he emerges, sorry, as a well-defined and sympathetic character, the sorely harrowed victim of a relentless fate, which is stronger than, yet identical with, himself. Joyce refers to him under various names, such as Here Comes Everybody and Haveth Childers Everywhere. Indications of his universality and his role as the great progenitor, the hero has wandered vastly, leaving families, that is, deposits of civilization, at every pause along the way from Troy and Asia Minor, he is frequently called the Turk, up through the turbulent lands of the Goths, the Franks, the Norsemen, and overseas to the green isles of Britain and the Eire. His chief Germanic manifestations are Woden and Thor, his chief Celtic, Manan and Maclar. Again, he is St. Patrick carrying the new faith. Again, Strongbow leading the Anglo-Norman conquest. Again, Cromwell conquering with a bloody hand. Most specifically, he is our Anglican tavern keeper, HCE, in the Dublin suburb Chapelazod. So, like Ulysses, the ground zero here is the utterly mundane, uh, you know, middle-class, tormented Irish people embedded in the detritus of the 20th century. But there's an effort to never lose the cosmic perspective, never lose the sense that we are, you know, not individuals lost in time, but the front ends of gene streams that reach back to Africa, that we somehow have all these ancestors and conflicts swarming and storming within it. It's a, it's a very, it's a glorious, psychedelic, heartful Irish view of what it is to be... Uh, uh, embedded in the mystery of existence. Well, okay, enough arm-waving. Now let's cut the cake here. River run past Eve and Adams, from swerve of shore to bend of bay, brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Halleth Castle and environs. Sir Tristram, the Lord of Moors for o'er the short sea, had passing corps re-arrived from North Amorica, on this side the scraggy isthmus of Europe Minor, to welter-fight his peninsulate war, nor had Topsawyer's rocks by the stream Oconee exaggerated themselves to Lawrence County Gorgios while they went doubling their mumber all the time. Nor a voice from a fire bellowed Misha, Misha, to tart, toff, thart, Patrick. Not yet, though then soon after, had a kid scad butt-ended a bland old Isaac. Not yet, though all's fair in vanity, were Sophie Sester's wrath with two-in-one Nathan Joe. Rot a peck of Pa's malt had Jem or Shen brewed by arc light and Rory end to the Regenbow was to be seen ringsome on the aqua face. The fall. 
baba baba dalgara hagatak amina arong kwarak brontong nerung kwabang varahu singat aktul hur dimun wangamanunuk. Of a once Wall Street old par is retailed early in bed and later on life do it down through all Christian minstrelsy. The great fall of off-wall entailed at such short notice the fit shoot of Finnegan, earth's solid man, that the Humpty Hill head of himself promptly sends an unquiring one well to the west in quest of his Tumpty Tumtoes, and their upturned pike toe and place is at the knockout in the park where oranges have been laid to rust upon the green since Devlin's first loved Livy. So, now, granted that the first pages are dense, and it isn't all this dense, because even though the concept of fractals lay years in the future, the effort here is to tell the whole damn thing in the first word, to tell it again in the next two words, to tell it again in the next three words, and so on. So here in these first roughly three paragraphs, uh, a huge amount of information is being passed along. Uh, first of all, uh, we're given a location if we're smart enough to know it. River Run, past even Adams, from swerve of shore to bend of bay, brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Howarth Castle and environs. Well, now, if you know the geography uh, of Dublin, you know that's where you are, because, and notice Howarth Castle and environs is H-C-E. These initials recur thousands of times in this book, always bringing you back to to remind you that this has something to do with Humphrey Earwicker. What this first sentence says is, River Run, and it's the River Liffey, which we will meet in a thousand reincarnations, because Anna Livia Pluribel is the personification of the goddess river. The river runs past Eve and Adams, and there is a church there on the shore named Adam and Eve in Dublin, from Swerve of Shore to Bend of Bay, and then this strange phrase brings us by a commodious vicos of recirculation. This announces the great architectonic plan of the wake, that it is in fact going to be based on the sociological ruminations of Giambattista Vico's La Ciencia Nuova, the vicos mode of recirculation. Because, as I'm sure you all know, Vico's theory of the fall and redemption of mankind was that there were four ages. I can't remember, gold, silver, iron, clay, I think. And so this idea of the recirculation, of the connectedness, of the cyclicity, of the, as he says, the same again, again and again, Sin again, sin again, the same again. And this is one of his great, great themes, is the recurso 
everything comes again. Nothing is unannounced. Love affair, every dynastic intrigue, every minor political disgrace, and a minor political disgrace figures very prominently in this book because as the carrier of Adam's sin, the great dilemma for Humphrey Earwicker is that he is running for a minor political post, alderman, but apparently one night, uh, rather juiced, he relieved himself. Well, there are many versions, and you hear them all, and they are all given in dreams and in mock trials and in accusatory fantasy. He either innocently took a leak in the park, or he fondled himself in some way in the presence of Maggie and her sister in such a way that his reputation is now at great risk. And it all depends on the testimony of a cad, a soldier, or perhaps three soldiers. It's never clear. It's constantly shifting. And uh, this question of, uh, you know, what happened? when Maggie seen all with her sister in shawl at the magazine wall haunts the book because uh, on it turns the question of whether HCE is a, a, a stalwart pillar of the community or in fact a backsliding masturbator and a monster and so forth and so on as one always is if one is trapped in a James Joyce novel. Um, then this puzzling list in the second paragraph is simply a list of things which haven't happened yet. Sir Tristram, lover of music, Villalore de Mors, for o'er the short sea, had passing corps, not yet, re-arrived from North Amorica, from the coast of Brittany, on this side, the scraggy isthmus of Europe Minor, to welterweight his penicillate war, now, this, is, this word peninsulate is typical Joyce punning. Uh, peninsulate war, obviously, is being launched from Brittany. Peninsulate war because Sir Tristram is the great archetype of the lover. And, uh, and so his war is uh, peninsulate. Uh, okay, so that's the first thing that has not yet happened, it's telling you. Sir Tristram has not yet come to Ireland, to put it simply. Um, nor has Top Sawyer's rocks by the stream Oconee exaggerated the cells to Lawrence County Gorgios while they went doubling their mumber all the time. Now, this is further obscurity. There is a, uh, there is a uh, stream in Georgia and Tom Sawyer is a reference to Tom Sawyer because Tom Sawyer was Finn, Huck Finn's friend. And Huck Finn is Finn in America. There is a huge amount of Mark Twain that has been poured into these books because of the Huckleberry-Finn connection, Finn in the New World. Um, and Top Sawyer's Rocks is a reference possibly to testicles and so forth and so on. Every single word, I mean, you can just take a word and go into this and until you exhaust yourself. 
And then the next thing that has not yet happened, nor a voice from a fire bellowed, Misha, Misha, to Tartoff, the Archpatriot. Tartoff is Celtic for thou art baptized. So St. Patrick has not yet baptized in Ireland. Not yet, though Venice soon after, and the Venice soon is a, is a pun on venison and very soon, had a kid scad butt-ended a bland old Isaac. It's a reference to the Isaac Esau tale in the Bible. It's also a reference to uh, Isaac Butts, who was a figure in the uh, politics of the Irish rebellion. Um, not yet those all's fairs in vanity were sothy sesters wrought with to a Nathan Joe. That's at this point a very obscure reference, but there is a great incest and sister theme in Finnegan's Wake. And the twin, the mistresses of uh, Jonathan Swift become carriers of a huge amount of energy in here, as do the mistresses of Thomas Stern, uh, because it's better to be swift than stern, <clears throat> or something like that. Uh, and then the last of these things, which hadn't happened yet, wrought a peck of Paul's malt, had gem or shem brewed by arc light, and Rory and to the Regenbrow was to be seen ringsome on the aqua face. That seems pretty obscure to me. According to Joseph Campbell, it's simply a reference to uh, the presence of God moving over the waters uh, in the first lines of Genesis. Ringsome on the aqua face. Then the, this phrase, the fall, and the multisyllabic word, Baba Labara that word, these are the Viconian thunders, and they announce the beginning of each Viconian age. And and when the thunder speaks, uh, you know then that there you're into a transition. Then it actually launches in in the last paragraph into a fairly straightforward evocation of at least the mythological uh, Finnegan. As you all probably know, there is an Irish drinking ballad of great antiquity called the Ballad of Tim Finnegan, or the Ballad of Finnegan's Wake. And it tells the story of uh, Tim Finnegan, who was a hod carrier, a bricklayer's assistant, and he was given to uh, hitting the poteen rather hard, and he fell from his ladder. It's the Humpty Dumpty story. He fell from his ladder, and he broke his back, and uh, his friends waked him in the grand Irish fashion, and at the height of the wake, they became so carried away and intoxicated that they upended a bucket of Guinness over his head, and he revived and joined the dance. <laughs> Tim 
Finnegan lived in walking street, a gentle Irishman mighty odd, pity the beautiful broke so rich and sweet, to raise in the world he carried a hut. You see, the sort of a chippling way, with a look for the liquor for Tim was born, to help a man with his work each day, to drop with a crater every morn. Oh, I call the damn out, that's the abander, well, the glory of Connor's shame. Wasn't it the truth? I told you, lots of fun at Finnegan's wake. One morning, Tim got rather full, his head felt heavy, which made him shake. Fell from a leather and he broke his skull, and he carried him home as corpse to wake. Roll him up in a nice thing sheet and laid him out upon the bed. A gallon of whiskey at his feet and a bottle of pork at his head. What was it? I know, dance the partner, well, the lawyer, Trotter's shake. Wasn't it the truth? I told you, lots of fun at Finnegan's wake. His friends assembled at the wake, and Mrs. Finnegan called for lunch. First, she brought in tea and cake, then pipes, tobacco, and whiskey punch. And the O'Brien began to cry, such a nice clean corpse did you ever see. Tim O'Brien, you know, why did you die here? How will your cops sit, Paddy McGee? Oh, I call it an O'Dance, dear partner, well, the floor your trotters shake. Wasn't it the truth? I told you, lots of fun at Finnegan's wake. Then Maggie O'Connor took up the job, a pity she's here, I'm sure. Pity he gave her a belt and a gop and left her sprawling on the floor. Then the war did soon engage, woman to woman and man to man. Janelle Law was all the rage and a row and a ruction soon began to work for the dad who danced here but never felt the glory or totter's shake wasn't it the truth I told you lots of fun that Finnegan's wife then Mickey Maloney raised his head when a nugget no whiskey flew at him it missed him falling on the bed the liquor scattered over Tim Tim revived see how he rises Timothy rising from the bed said well you're a whiskey around like blazes Tanaman Dale do you think I'm dead work for the dad who danced here but never felt the glory or totter's shake wasn't it the truth I told you lots of fun uh, this is the resurrection. I mean, Tim Finnegan is very clearly for Joyce uh, a Christ figure. And here is then the first evocation of Tim Finnegan, the fall, then the Viconian thunder, of a once Wall Street old par, which is just an old person, is retailed early in bed and later on life down through all Christian minstrelsy, the great fall of the off-wall entailed at such short notice, the fchute of Finnegan. Now, this word, P-F-T-J-S-C-H-U-T-E, fchute, is Norwegian, uh, I'm informed, and refers, it's, it, and it's ref, it refers to the, the act of falling and the act of falling from a hill. Finnegan. Earth's solid man that the humpty hill head of himself promptly sends an unquiring one well to the west in quest of his tumpty tumtoes and their upturned pike point and place is at the knockout in the park where oranges have been laid to rust upon the green since Devlin's first loved Livy. This is fairly transparent if you're Irish or a citizen of Dublin because what it's talking about is... Dublin is imagined to be situated basically in the belly of an enormous giant person who is uh, Finnegan. Finnegan lies like a giant reclining figure along the Liffey there, husband and wife, river and mountain. And, and this is actually then, the focus has changed, and now we're talking about the geography. Uh, he was a solid man, Earth's solid man, but then somehow he turned into something where uh, the humpty hill head of himself 
promptly sends an unquiring one well to the west in quest of his tumpty tum toes. And if you have a map of Dublin laid out, you can actually see this enormous man in the landscape. And there are many enormous men and women in the landscape of this planet. And Joyce maps the Dublin geography over all of them. Some of you may know Istaxivatl, the magical mountain in Mexico. Istaxivatl means the sleeping woman in Toltec. And many mountains are imagined to be uh, sleeping people. So here he introduces this theme. And... Uh, this is one paragraph. This is the, the invocation of Finnegan uh, as hod carrier. Big Mr. Finnegan of the stuttering hand, Freeman's Mower, lived in the broadest way imaginable in his rush lit too far back for messages before Joshuan judges had given us numbers or Helveticus commuted Deuteronomy. One yeasty day, he sternly strokes his teeth in a tub for to wash the future of his fates. But ere he swiftly took it out again, by the might of Moses, the very water was evaporated, and all the gunnesses had met their exodus. So that ought to show you what a pension junchy chap he was. And during mighty odd years, this man of hard cement and edifices, H-C-E, hard cement and edifices, in Topper's Thorpe piled building, supra-building upon the banks of the livers by the so-and-so. He iada idl fifey ani, ogged the little creature, with her har in hones took up your part in her, off while babulous, mirror ahead with goodly trowel and grasp and ivorold overalls which he habiticularly fancied. Like Harum Childeric Egerberth, he would calculate by multiplicables the altitude and multitude until he seesaw by neat light of the liquor where Twint was born his round head stable of other days to rise in undress masonry upstanded joy granite a wall worth of a skier scrape of most eiffel howeth and towerly originating from next to nothing and celluscating the hymnals and all higher architectipophlopical with a burning bush a bob off its bubble top and with Lawrence O'Toolers clittering up and Thomas Abacats clattering down now what this paragraph says is he was a great builder. <laughs> and I think if you think back through your impression of hearing it read, you knew that. You know, these words that are associated, words like uh, a wall worth of a skyer scrape of most eiffel howeth and towerly. These are skyscraper words. Woolworth, skyscrape entourly, howeth, so forth and so on. And he can do this. He can build up a, a uh, pastiche of surfaces, of impressions. Now, you might say, why is there no economy? 
well, there is no economy because economy is an aesthetic criterion for shoemakers, not for artists. And, uh, uh, you know, economy is the curse of the Bauhaus babblers from hell, which Joyce was very concerned to refute all of that. If you have to place this in a context, it's in the context of the most hallucinatory of the Baroque. Uh, you know, this is Archimboldo land. This is a, a, a work that would have been welcome at the Rudolphine court in Prague. It's a work of magical complexity and, uh, and uh, enfolded self-reference. Now, we've just been through these first four paragraphs. Now I'll read you what uh, Joseph Campbell has to say on it. By no means all of what he has to say on it. Uh, the first four paragraphs are the suspended tick of time between a cycle just passed and one about to begin. They are, in effect, an overture, resonant with all the themes of Finnegan's Wake. The dominant motif is the polylingual thunderclap of paragraph three, Baba Baba Darwin, that one, uh, which the voice of God makes audible through the noise of Finnegan's fall. Narrative movement begins with the life, fall, and wake of Hod Carrier Finnegan, uh, pages 4 to 7. The wake scene fades into the landscape of Dublin and environs. We've just heard how he fell from the ladder. Now we move into a description um, of, the, of the wake, and there's a certain voice that appears at certain times it's where there are a lot of words ending in A-T-I-O-N, continuation of the celebration until the examination of the extermination. The, okay, these are the 12 judges. It, each character, when they appear, has a certain tempo to their character. So when that tempo enters the text, you know the character is present, even though there may be no trace. For example, Anne Olivia Pluribel's tempo is the tempo of the hen. Hear a little, there a little, go a little, see a little, do a little. The hen is scratching. This is this nervous, bird-like. That's Anne Olivia's signature. Here's just one paragraph from the wake scene, which builds and has quite a, a minor amount of humor associated with it. She's I should she. Makul makul or hoya didia day of a trying Thursday morning, sobs they sided at Philagon's Chrysomorus wake, all the hooligans of the nation prostrated in their consternation, and their duodismally plofflusive plethora of ululation. There was plums and groans and sheriffs and sitherers and raiders and cinnamon too, and they all gained in with the shoutmost joviality, agog and magog and the round of them agrog, to the continuation of that celebration until hand and hungan's extermination. Some in kink and chorus, more can can keenan, belling him up and filling him down. He's stiff, but he's steady as Priamolum. 
Twas he was a decent gay laboring youth, sharp in his pillow scone, tap up his beer. Era where in this whirl will you hear such a dinigan with their deep brow fundigs and the dusty fidelios? They laid him brawn drawn a lang last bed with a buckalips of fisky for his feet and a barrel load of gunas o'er his head. To the total of the fluid hang the twaddle of the fuddle though. Well, it's a drunken Irish wake. Um, that seems clear. But there are a lot of things going on. Era where in this whirl will you hear such a din again? And he's stiff, but he's steady as Priamolum. All this, um, all this um, Dionysian and uh, sexual imagery is um, fully explicit in some ways more realized as a character or more lovable, if that's the word, is Anna Livia Pluribel. I mean, Anna Livia Pluribel is Molly Bloom on acid, basically. <laughs> I mean, M Molly Bloom, we don't lose her outlines. We understand Molly. And because Molly doesn't offer us uh, that much of her own mind. She stands for the eternal feminine, but only in the final soliloquy in Ulysses do we really contact her. Anna Livia, it's her book. It may, in fact, be her dream. And the whole thing is permeated with her tensions and her cares. As it says, Grandpapas is fallen down, meaning the great father God is at wake. Grandpapas is fallen down, but Grinny sprids the board, meaning Anna Livia is always there. She's always there. And in, in the wake, really you could almost say that Molly Bloom's soliloquy has been expanded to 300, 400 pages. And the whole thing is a meditation on the river. The river is the feminine, and the first image in the book and the last image are the image of the river. The river dissolves everything and carries it out to sea. Let me read this description of Anna Livia Pluribel, and then we'll go back to the synopsis. How beautiful and how true to wife of her, when strangely forbidden to steal our historic presence from the past post-propophoticals so as to will make us all lordy heirs and lady maidices of a pretty nice kettle of fruit. She is living in our midst of debt and laughing through all pores for us. Her birth is uncontrollable, with a naparon for her mask and her sabos kicking arias, so sere, so solly. If you ask me and I sack you, how, how? Greeks may rise and troisters fall. She is mercenary. Through the length of the land lies under liquidation, flute, and there's nor a harbo nor an eyebrush on this glabrous face of Herschrift. What our Walter shall loan a Vesta and hire some peat and sarch the shores her cockles to heat and she'll do all a tarf woman can to puff the business on, puff, to puff the blaziness on, puff, puff, and even if Humphrey shall fall frumpty times as awkward again in the beard's busaloom of all our grand remonstrances, 
there'll be eggs for the breakers come to mourn him, sunny side up with care. So true it is that there's where's a turnover, the tay is wet too, and when you think you catch sight of a hind, make sure you're cocked by a hen. Well, Nora felt that Jimmy would have been much better as a singer. She so stated that she had great hopes for his voice. And uh, she was a very practical woman, Nora Barnacle. There wasn't a literary bone in her body, I think. Uh, I think that's what Joyce loved about her, was that she was the real thing. Uh, and all these women, Molly and Olivia, uh, uh, they all are, are Nora Joyce, for sure. He... Um, died shortly after it was published, although it had been known in manuscript for over ten years to the literati of his circle. Um, it was called Work in Progress. And uh, people didn't even know if he was serious or not. Uh, and it was very hard to find a publisher. It was a typographical nightmare. Joyce was going blind. And so, you know, trying to keep track of, of, of the spelling. And there's hardly a standard spelling in there. There's hardly a word that is uh, not somehow fiddled with and, uh, and changed around. If you pay attention to what you're calling life as it is, you will discover that it's not a simple thing at all. That it's, an that it's like this. I mean, I used to say... When you're vacuuming your apartment, Rome falls nine times an hour. And your job is to notice. And you always do notice, but you never tell yourself that you're noticing. So it, it, in the course of a day, you know, I, I live and you live, to some degree, the entirety of, of global civilization. I mean, uh, Rome falls... Algebra is discovered, the Turks are beating at the gates of Vienna, and it isn't even 11 a.m. yet, you know. Uh, so there is this sense of uh, the, the co-presence of history. We are imprisoned inside the linear assumption that I'm a person in a place, in a time, I'm alive, most people aren't. But, but in fact, when you deconstruct all that, that's just, that is fiction. And the truth is more this onrushing magma of literary association. And you know in Ulysses you get an enormous amount of half-baked science. Leopold Bloom is always looking at things and explaining to himself how they work using very crackpotted notions of hydraulics and electricity and this sort of thing. Uh, I think, uh, you know, people say the psychedelic experience is hard to remember, dreams are hard to remember, but harder to remember than either of those is simply ordinary experience. You know, you lie in the baths and you close your eyes for 30 seconds and empires fall, dynastic families unfold themselves, power changes hands, princes are beheaded, a pope disgrace, so forth, that was for you. And, uh, <laughs> and then somebody drops 
something and you wake up and 15 seconds have passed. That's the reality of life. But we suppress this chaotic, irrational side. The genius of Joyce and to some degree, although in a more controlled form, Proust, and then there were other practitioners, Faulkner certainly, was what they called stream of consciousness. But what it was, was it was an ability to listen to the associating mind without trimming, pruning, judging, denying. One of the great puzzles to me is the great antagonism between Jung and Joyce because you would have thought that they would have been comrades in arms. Uh, But uh, uh, Joyce loathed psychoanalysis. He didn't... thought that to use all this material to elucidate imagined pathologies was a very uncreative use of it and that it should all be fabricated in, uh, into literature. It ha- it's very hard to surpass. Uh, you know, Thomas Pynchon, William Gaddis, uh, these people, they, everybody genuflects to Joyce, but very few people plow in the way he did. I mean, Thomas Pynchon is considered a difficult, hallucinatory uh, writer, and there isn't 20 pages in in Gravity's Rainbow as obscure as a randomly chosen page here. Uh, I I can understand the impulse to, uh, to want to get the universe into a book because it hints at something that we've talked about in some of these circles, or whatever they are, which is that that um, the character of life is like a work of literature. We are told that you're supposed to fit your experience into the model which science gives you, which is probabilistic, statistical, predictable, and yet it's the felt datum of experience is much more literary than that. I mean, we fall in love, we make and lose fortunes, we are, we inherit houses in Scotland, we lose everything, we get terrible diseases, we're cured of them, or we die of them. But it all has this uh, strom und drang aspect to it, which physics is not supposed to have, but which literature always has. And I think that, I don't know if it's true, but I think what Joyce believed and what I'm willing to entertain at some depth is the idea that salvation is somehow an act of encompassing comprehension. That salvation is an actual act of apprehension, of understanding, and that this act of apprehension involves everything. This is why the, uh, the alchemic, before James Joyce and this kind of literature, the only place where you got these kinds of constructs was in alchemy and magic, the idea that, you know, through an act of magic, the universe could be condensed to yield a fractal microcosm of itself 
Well, then what Joyce is saying is that the novel, which was unknown in the alchemical era, the novel comes later, I mean, arguably, but the real zest for the novel comes in the 19th century, that the, that the novel is the uh, alchemical retort into which these, these theories of, uh, of how things work can be cast. I think the great modern exponent of this, although now dead, and certainly one who owed an enormous debt to Joyce, was Vladimir Nabokov, especially in Ada. Ada is, is his paean of praise to Finnegan's Wake, basically. And, and the idea tacked in there is uh, the idea of causality and ordinary casuistry. See, the, what all these people are saying, I think, and, and what the psychedelic experience argues for as well, is that we are somehow prisoners of language and that somehow, you know, if we're prisoners of language, then the key which will set us loose is somehow also made of language. What else could fit the lock? So somehow an act of poetic leisure domain is necessary. And, and Joyce, in Finnegan's Wake, I mean, he didn't live to argue the case or to work it out. He died shortly after. But this comes about as close as anybody ever came to actually pushing the entire contents of the universe down into about 14 cubic inches. Joyce and Proust had one meeting and supposedly... Joyce said to Proust, uh, I'm too young for you to teach me anything. Are you all familiar with the remembrance of things past? Well, it could hardly be a more different work of literature. I mean, it is stately and cinematic, and you always know where you are, and the characters are defined. It's an old-style novel, but there are places in it where he just takes flight and uh, prefigures the, the kind of writing that Faulkner and Joyce were able to do. As far as psychedelic influences, I don't, I don't know that there are arguably any. Uh, Joyce lived in Trieste for a while and taught English. He may have been, uh, as, a, as a habitué of Paris, he may have been familiar with hashish. He probably had some familiarity with absinthe, uh, but I doubt that it was a lifestyle for him. Um, I think that the whole of the 20th century is informed by this hyperdimensional understanding and that, you know, um, Jung tapping into it in, in the 20s the Dadaists in 1919 in Zurich, the Surrealists, even earlier, the École de Pataphysique, L'Entremont, Jarry, all of these people. It, it's what it's about, the 20th century, is this... Uh, well, the McLuhan's phrase comes to mind, the Gutenberg galaxy, the spectrum of effects created by print 
you know, the classes, the conceits, the industries, the products, the attitudes, the garments, all of the things created uh, by print. And we are living in a, um, in a terminal civilization. I mean, I don't want to say dying because civilizations aren't animals, uh, but we are living in an age of great self-summation. When we, what we look back at is basically since um, the fall of Rome, there has been an unbroken working out of certain themes. Scholasticism, you know, the Aristotelian and Platonic corpuses, Christianity always presented as uh, uh, somehow a rival to science is in fact paves the way for science. There would have been no science had there not been William of Ockham, who was a uh, 14th century nominalist theologian. Uh, really, Western civilization has had a thousand years to work its magic. And now there is a summation underway. And I don't certainly presume, uh, at least not this evening, to judge it. How, how, do, you, how do you place uh, a value on an entire civilization? But uh, uh, in the same way that when a person dies, their entire life passes before them in review. When a civilization dies... It, it hypnagogically cycles the detritus of centuries and centuries of struggle to understand. And uh, someone like Joyce, I think, just brings that to an excruciating uh, climax because it's all there, you know. The, 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 it's all there from the smile that tugs at the lips of the woman in the Arnolfini wedding to quantum physics to what Moliere said to his niece in the 15th letter and so forth and so on and, uh, and, the, and the task is to hold it in your mind I think it was James uh, I, I think it was um William James, who said, if we don't read the books with which we carefully line our apartments, then we're no better than our dogs and cats. <laughs> and, uh, you know, too, too often this is lost sight of. And the point of it, it's not simply that we are esthetes, literateurs, and that here in the twilight of the gods we should sit around reading James Joyce. That isn't the point. The point is that this is the distillation of our experience of what it is to be human, and it's out of these kinds of, of distilling processes that we can launch some kind of new... Uh, new dispensation for the human enterprise because we we have played it we have played it out it's a, it's a, it's now a set piece all of it i mean when i listen to rock and roll now i it's as in, it's interesting to me but it has the completedness of uh, polyphony you know it's a done deal somehow 
and we're looking backward and we're anticipating. And the purpose of literature, I think, is, is to illuminate the past and to give a certain guidance as we move into the future. And, and this book, by being at first so opaque and so challenging to aesthetic canons and, and social values, eventually emerges as a very prescient insight into our, uh, our, our circumstance. The Ballad of Finnegan's Wake has hundreds of verses and uh, in an Irish pub can keep people going all night, uh, all night long. It's a celebration of complexity and of uh, the human journey and of, and Joyce doesn't judge. I mean, you know, it says somewhere in Finnegan's Wake, here in Moy Cane, which is the red light district of Dublin, here in Moy Cane we flop on the seamy side. <laughs> but up Nient, prospector, you sprout all your worth and woof your wings. So if you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. That's that passage about death. Here in Moy Cane we flop on the seamy side. But up Nient, you sprout all your worth and woof your wings. It was a very optimistic, uh, 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 transformative sort of vision. Somehow complexity is, is the ocean we have to learn to surf. That's the river. Yes, that's the river. And, and that's the psychedelic side of it. I mean, imagine that you can get 63,000 different words in here, tell a story, and have all the article, common articles and modifiers operating normally anyway. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, and then it's very optimistic. I mean, Molly Bloom's speech uh, is, you know, probably the single most optimistic outpouring in all of 20th century literature. Not that there was much competition, but... Uh, huh? Yes, yes, the final affirmation, yes. Sam Beckett, Nobel Prize winner, genius in his own right, but secretary to James Joyce for many, many years, and uh, passionately in love with Joyce's tragically schizophrenic daughter. One of the, you know, you want an unhappy story, the story of, of Sam, you'll find out why Sam Beckett is not exactly laughing all the time in his work. Uh, a very, very complex relationship to Joyce's schizophrenic child. Joyce's family life was not very happy. I think he had a wonderfully sensuous life with Nora. But I don't know what it would be like to be the guy who wrote this book and live with a woman who thought you would be better off as a saloon singer. Uh, not exactly a saloon singer. I mean, he did, uh, but, but still. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, thank you, Bibi. And uh, in case you haven't heard me mention this before, that lovely Australian-accented voice you just heard is none other than Black Beauty, the host of BB's Bungalow on the dopefiend.co.uk network. And if you haven't checked out the Cannabis Podcast Network at that URL, well, you don't know what you're missing. 
There are uh, half a dozen or so podcasts there, uh, all of which I listen to regularly. So uh, thank you, BB and friends, for all you do in podcast land. It would uh, sure be a lonely place without you. Now, in order to uh, get started on the next segment of this talk, I'm going to try to keep my announcements here kind of brief, and we'll catch up on the rest of the news from the tribe in my next program. But there are a few quick things that I do want to mention right now. And the first one is that uh, the other day, Gary Fisher gave me a folder that contained a dozen or so of his research papers that uh, haven't yet been digitized and published on the Internet. And while I haven't yet had the time to read any of them, their titles are uh, very intriguing. Things like Psychedelic Drug Usage, Sociological and Socio-Political Considerations, Personality Characteristics Ascribed to Marijuana Users, Milieu of Marijuana Use, Multiple Drug Use of Marijuana Users, The Legalization of Marijuana, Views of Several American Populations of Users and Non-Users, an ecosystems approach to the study of dangerous drug use and abuse with special reference to the marijuana issue. And uh, at least three or four other papers uh, are also about some early cannabis studies, uh, most of which were published in scholarly journals in the uh, early 1970s. Now, the reason I'm mentioning them now is that uh, there simply is no way I'm going to have the time to rekey them into digital format for posting on the web. And I don't feel right about uh, waiting for a year or so to get these papers online. So if any of you good typists would like to volunteer to do this work, I would uh, be happy to mail them out to you to process as your time permits. But I should warn you that uh, some of these papers are quite long and have detailed tables in them that are going to be rather tedious to type. At least it would be for me. So if you're uh, interested in looking into this, you can uh, try to reach me via email at lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. However, uh, right now, the only sure way to reach me is uh, through the Facebook email system. So far, I've uh, been able to keep up with those messages on a weekly basis, and uh, there's no spam filter there to give you a problem. And as you know, uh, you can find me on Facebook under my full name, Lorenzo Haggerty, and that's H-A-G-E-R-T-Y. One G. Another thing uh, I'd like to mention today is that uh, yesterday I spoke with Sasha Shulgin, who told me that Anne is doing fine after uh, having what she told me was a rotor-rooter job, <laughs> and I'm uh, sure she would appreciate any white light you can send her way. But uh, right now, all is well, and uh, she should be home from the hospital by the time you hear this podcast. So, Anne, we wish you a speedy recovery and uh, look forward to the next time you stop by the salon for another one of your wonderful talks. And finally, I want to let you know that I will be speaking at the Oracle Gathering that is going to be held from June 12th through the 14th. Uh, I'll post a link to this event with the program notes for today's podcast, but since you probably aren't at your computer right now, I'll go ahead and read a little bit from the oraclegatherings.com website. And that's Oracle Gatherings, plural, O-R-A-C-L-E-G-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Uh, and here's a small idea of what these incredible events are about. Founded in 2001, the Oracle Gatherings is a series of multimedia events, workshops, and forums created by a collective of participating artists growing to include hundreds from all over the Northwest, Canada, and beyond. 
The events draw artists of every genre, including DJs, musicians, dancers, visual artists, actors, video artists, circus performers, and culinary artists who share in creating the fullest experience possible. Those who have been to an Oracle gathering have uh, come to expect ceremony, music, dancing, tarot card readers, yoga, meditation, massage, art installations, and ritual theater. This formula is what sets these gatherings apart from all other theater, club, and art events. By infusing spirit and celebration, many people have found an open, inviting community waiting for them in the Oracle. This summer brings us the last of the original tarot card series, the 23rd Gathering of the Oracle, The Fountain, June 12th to 14th, 2009. Now, the location for this event has not yet been announced, but uh, I can tell you that it will be within a few hours' drive from Portland, Oregon. My wife and I and uh, several of our close friends will be there, and if there is any way you can make it yourself, uh, I know you won't be disappointed. I was only able to make it to one of their previous events, and uh, it really took me by surprise. Blew me away, in fact. And uh, this final gathering promises to be even more spectacular uh, since it will be held outdoors. The best way I can think of uh, to describe uh, an Oracle gathering is to call it Mind States Meets Burning Man, but without the extreme conditions we face on the playa, of course. So, if you are still trying to find the others, well, this is where a lot of them are going to be on June 12th through the 14th of this year. I'm already sensing that uh, this will be one of the legendary gatherings that we'll be talking about for many years to come, and I hope to see you there. But if you do plan to attend, please don't wait too long to get your ticket, because uh, it could very well sell out fast. Well, that's about enough of my chatter for today, and uh, I'll be back as soon as I can with the second part of the talk we just heard. But for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.